Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 275, recorded October 8th, 2017. So, Star Trek had a five-year mission. So I Only heard. three of it made it to live action. But year four got both the animated treatment and now an IDW miniseries. Actually, two miniseries. And we're covering issues three, four, and five of the first Star Trek year four miniseries. Right. So the animated series, I think we talked about this last time, went for uh, two seasons. So that's four and five? That's right. That's how I count it. Okay. So that's how I, I, I got on board with you last time. Cool. <laughs> More of these issues that are very episodic, very Star Trekian, but um, I, you know, just as a general statement, I don't think I'll be reading them again. Yeah, I think I kind of liked the first two. Yeah, you know that we did last week. One right. was the what was it? The ice insurgents or whatever ice traditionalists were trying to keep the other people from making all the money off of the dilithium right you know those those stories i thought were pretty good yeah um here man these three are not nearly as good as those first two no no and a little confusing i i I will be honest i was quite lost on the first one that we'll cover here in a minute yeah and the last one it just like was like hey nobody's really thinking right okay we can just do anything okay Right. Which I was not too appreciative of. But it's like, you know, you just got to kind of go with it. If the story's good. And it wasn't that good. So, right. All right. Yeah. It was okay. Yeah, I didn't read these when they were coming out, even though, um, you know, it was when I was really into Star Trek. Uh, and, and actually, ironically enough, it's when uh, it's kinda, it kind of came out when you and I were first meeting and talking about Star Trek. So it's like... Mm-hmm. These were bringing back all those memories from way back then. And I remember purposely not reading them because I think we had talked about maybe doing the podcast. Yeah. And I was like, I'll, I'll hold off on these new year four issues until we eventually get to them. And now I'm reading them. And I guess because maybe I, I had them built up a little bit, you know, because it's been 10 years since they came out. Right. That uh, I expected them to be better. But uh, they are disappointing me a little bit. Okay. Well, they, they still, it's a Star Trek story. They still have value. Sure, sure. So, shall we begin? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So, this one is uh, year four, issue number three. Uh, I found no title. Published date, September 2007. Writer is David Tishman. Art by Gordon Purcell. Colors by Leonard O'Grady. Letterer, Neil Yataki. Editor, Dan Taylor. There's three covers. Cover A features a sort of cartoony art look with the Enterprise diagonally, uh, you know, shooting across the cover and kind of like uh, cutting it kind of in half diagonally. The upper left half shows Spock and McCoy about to enter a Jeffrey's tube uh, that Nurse Chapel is in. The lower right half is split into two sections. Kirk is in one holding his left hand that seems to be possessed by a 
glowing alien force? Will he chop it off and go full ash? The others show Scotty Uhura, Sulu, Chekhov, and more crewmen holding phasers up and ready to fire. This cover is by Steve Connolly. Cover B features a nicely done photorealistic painting of Uhura, Spock, McCoy, and the Enterprise with that good old-fashioned Taz look. Very nice uh, coloring and a uh, nice job. Very nice job by Joe Caroni. The retailer incentive cover is just a photo of Dr. McCoy. It's a nice photo of Dr. McCoy, but it's just a photo of Dr. McCoy. Nurse Chapel is in a shuttlecraft holding her ears and frightened. The door is closed. She should be safe. But the high tensile strength metal is glowing red. The high-pitched angry sound of a phaser discharging at high power is deafening. Like giant angry bees trying to get in at all costs. The door opens and the threat that has the Starfleet nurse terrified enters. Captain Kirk and Dr. McCoy enter the craft. Kirk, holding a phaser, states she is the last one. Kirk and McCoy take her out of the shuttle and out of the hangar bay at gunpoint. A strange ribbon of green energy ripples across the shuttle bay. Five days before. The Enterprise enters orbit around planet PHI-11 to check on the colony that inhabits this remote planet at the edge of the galaxy. All contact was lost with the colony weeks ago, so the Enterprise was dispatched to investigate. They find dead settlers whose records showed they unearthed the wreckage of an alien escape pod. Spock returns to the ship with the captain, while the rest of the landing party continues their investigation. On the ship, Spock views video records that showed the colonists having behaving on the ship, Spock views video records that showed the colonists behaving strangely and apparently attacking each other. McCoy reports to Spock and Kirk his autopsy findings. Massive brain trauma occurred, as if their brains were fed a flood of information they could not handle. Kirk is called to the bridge while McCoy and Spock watch the video records. In the galley, Nurse Chapel notices Emress and another crewman acting strangely. On the bridge, Sulu alters course and speed. Kirk asks why and is told he did so on the captain's orders. Kirk realizes all too late that the bridge crew is no longer taking orders from him. Spock puts Kirk to sleep with a neck pinch. Nurse Chapel enters sickbay and finds the captain bound to a bed. He says they are taking over the ship and asks for help to stop them. McCoy says it's Kirk who is taken over by the entity. Chapel acts like she is buying into McCoy's explanation, but drops Kirk a scalpel. Kirk frees himself, and they both run out into the hall. Sulu and others intercept them. Kirk tells that Christine must find a way to save the ship and attack Sulu to give her time to escape. Another crewman that looks a lot like Commander Data enters the fight and gets a right cross from Kirk. On the bridge, the helmsman reports to Spock that they are approaching the planet. Spock addresses the entire ship and says all remaining crewmen must be transformed. Sulu and Data start shrieking in unison, and somehow that takes over Captain Kirk. Later, 
Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Chapel are beamed down to the planet's surface. It's a lovely planet, blessed with beautiful vegetation, including perfect roses. Later still, Kirk and crew are back on the ship. He records a log that explains that the Ur are a viral life form with communal sentience that infects their carriers through sound. It lay dormant in the body of the pilot for a thousand years. Its unfamiliarity with human physiology killed the colonists. The Ur did not mean to kill anyone. They were just trying to get home. McCoy states there must be easier ways to catch a ride. Kirk says part of their mission is to seek out new life forms. The Ur certainly qualify. The end. <laughs> that's it. That was that was kind of abrupt then there. Was it? That was pretty that's pretty much what happened. I mean, yeah, they they talk a little bit back and forth, but really not that much. Yeah, no. And you know, in the end, what about all those colonists that were killed? They were killed. But they were just trying to get home. The sound baby. I know. They didn't understand that they were killing the colonists. So obviously they figured out how they were killing people by the time they got to the Enterprise, more or less. I hope so. It seemed like it. Anyway, so they hitched a ride. Um, This is not the first time the Enterprise crew has been taken over, or at least parts of the crew have been taken over by some other life form. And uh, yeah, this is just retreading the same idea. Me? Right. Me? Really reminded me of Naked Now or Naked Space or whatever that the naked one was. <laughs> uh, where they were uh, all drunk, space drunk. Yeah. yeah. And acting weird. Uh, I mean, the, the, here they're all paranoid. But uh, Right. And that, it was kind of giving me the same vibe. Right. So there was uh, a Taz version of that episode, and then there was a next-gen version of that episode, I think. Right. Yeah. So one was Naked Time, I think. Naked Time was the original series, and Naked Now was the uh, next generation. There you go. Back when they were retreading Taw's yeah. ideas. Right. Season one. Yeah. Mm, that season one. They were still trying to get Season their, one, uh... also known as <laughs> Star Trek <laughs> Retread. Exactly. <laughs> Let's go ahead and do all the ideas that Taw's did, or at least as many as we can, we can kind of work through. Yeah. Okay. So it was, it was okay, but not really not great. So you threw me when you were doing the synopsis and you said uh, five days earlier. And I was like, where is he getting this from? Because ah. that, that first scene is what got me so much. I was confused the whole yeah. book. Star going, date. Look at the star date. Yeah. When you said that and I went back and, and looked at the pages, I was like, oh, okay. Uh, one's 4178 and the other one's 4173. So I was like, oh, that must be where he's got that. From. That's where I got it from. But you know, I'm just assuming that that last digit is days. Right. I really don't know for sure. I really never really knew what star dates were. So Right. Yeah. I'm sure but, somebody uh, out there may have a better idea, but I don't. But anyways, that makes that makes sense cuz I was I was all kinds of confused as to where that first scene how it had fit in. Yeah, cuz yeah. then later she's she's just there at in sick bay and I'm like, "What was going on with the first part?" What I'm I'm not smart enough to look at star dates on two different pages. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyways, uh, yeah, I don't know. This one was this one was weird. Yeah, I thought the artwork was pretty good, um, but the story was kind of meh. Right, and I think even Kirk almost kills the guy with a belt. Right, just wraps it around his neck and chokes him until he at least passes out. 
But uh, that can't be good for you. No. No. That's not a very friendly thing to do. Right. How did he keep him from, you know, crushing the windpipe or whatever? It's just like, yeah, it's pretty risky, Kirk. Yep. But hey, you know, he got Sulu and the other guy. Uh, and then, uh, yeah. Well, I, I guess if you can't do a Vulcan neck pinch, you just choke him. Yeah, but Kirk always just punches him. He's able to knock him out with one shot. <laughs> yeah, without anybody screaming. Like, if that was, like, real life, it's like the first time you hit him, the guy would probably go, oh, man, that hurts. And then, you know, you'd have to hit him a second time to actually put him out. Put him out. Yeah, but with Kirk, you, he, he's, a, he's a boxer. He only had, he's a one-hit Kirk. Yeah, he's a one <laughs> one hit Kirk. That's all it takes. I, I, I don't know what episode of the original series it is, but uh, there's one of those like beer, big bar fight type things with with Klingons. Uh huh. And Kirk swings at him, and it looks like he might have hit the Klingon's elbow. <laughs> but he goes down anyway. And the, and he just goes down. So he's like, you know, he has a glass elbow because uh, <laughs> there's no way you could say he hit his face. It was right. Like, it it was a funny shot. Yeah, I, I w- I'm gonna have to try to find that episode, but uh, and it probably wasn't even Shatner no. doing the swinging. It, it was, was, probably the, it stunt, was stunt double. double. That's why they were doing the wide shot. Right. Anyways, but yeah, I like the artwork. There was a few people that I didn't recognize, like the, yeah. the guy with Sulu. I mean, who's that guy? Well, okay. <laughs> well, I don't think it's it's like somebody you're supposed to know. But okay. but look at it when you when you, I first see him, and actually a couple of them, it kind of looks like Brent Spiner. Uh, so especially um, when Sulu is hurled into him, he just mm-hmm. looks a little bit like Data, uh, and he's even really, really white, you know, really, really pasty looking. Yeah, he's pale. And then when Kirk is hitting him, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll agree, not perfect, not a perfect Data, not, not by any means, but he just reminds me a little bit about uh, Brent Spiner. Hmm. I could see that. Hmm. I was thinking a young uh, Liam Neeson, but uh... oh, could be, could be. Could be. Yeah, who just saw Dark Man, or at least the, the first fifteen minutes of it the other day? It's like, yeah, gosh, gosh darn it! Liam Neeson is young in that, young and skinny. Right. Yeah, that was like one of his first movies. Right, and then the uh, the sheriff from Fargo, the movie Fargo. I forgot she was the love interest. So oh, Francis Francis McDermott. Yeah, exactly, Francis McDermott. Yeah. Okay, I didn't remember. Peyton, right? And her, her name Peyton in the movie? Ah, something like that. I don't know why that sticks in my head. <laughs> How interesting. But I like that movie. Sam Raimi trying to yeah. do a comic book movie before they would give him a real comic book movie. Right. Yeah, definitely a comic book movie, but it didn't, you know, it didn't really shove the comic book aspect of it down your throat. No. And it did spin off into a few comic books. There was... um. Marvel did a miniseries, and then uh, Dynamite did a miniseries, and there was even a Dark Man Army of Darkness crossover. Oh, cool! Because I tell you, you watch some of the special effects in Dark Man, especially when he's first like, like getting used to his new situation, and it's like they're trying to get across what kind of pain he feels and everything, and some of the special effects there just just. Just totally reminds me of uh, Evil Dead too. Right. Oh yeah. 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 With the camera work. Exactly. Zooming into his eyeball, and then you see the explosions and stuff. Right. Yeah. Exactly. No, that's a good movie. Now I want to go watch it. <laughs> I haven't seen that in years. Right. Okay. Uh, 
All right. Well, I guess we should talk about Trek. So um, I didn't like that the aliens were able to take over people uh, just by making this noise, this yeah, the sound, shriya, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make sense. No. It doesn't are they make replicating sense, themselves? But... Are they replicating themselves in anybody who hears this noise? And then just by beaming down to the planet, they can make the noise and then it leaves their body? I, I don't understand. I have no idea. And why does it have to be the entire crew? So they made a big stinking deal about they had to get everybody. So they had to get to a nurse chapel. Why? Why do you have to get to everybody? Because she could stop them. What's she not going to do? She's, she's stuck in the shuttlecraft. Mm. Anyway... So, uh, I, I don't know. And so, everybody was taken over, but it only took four of them to beam down. That was my next thing. I guess everybody beams down. Or they, Whatever, I don't or think these four beams. people took in all of the, exactly. all of the errs and released them all at once. Yeah, exactly. it makes no sense, Ken. Yeah, not, not that great. Not that great. Okay, that's all I'd say. All right, cool. Well, I don't have anything else either. Mm. Uh, the next one is probably my favorite out of the three we're doing today. Okay. Only because it's it's kind of funny. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's go ahead and talk about it. So uh, issue number four came out uh, October of 2007. It is a little different in the staff department, so we'll go through it again. Written by David Tishman. Art by the Sharp Brothers. Colors by Leonard O'Grady. Letters by Chris Mallory and edits by Dan Taylor and Andrew Stephen Harris. Like the one before, there's three covers. Uh, the first one is the uh, cartoony cover, as Ken mentions. Uh, this is by Steve Conley, and it shows um, like a cameraman filming Ahura shooting Kirk in the back, and then underneath that is the Enterprise swooshing through the air, kind of cutting the uh, page into two again. And then below that, we see McCoy and Spock with a uh, Dr. Phil-looking guy on the set of some sort of talk show. And to the right of that, we see people like in a Times Square situation looking up, watching Sulu fencing on the big Jumbotron. Uh, The other cover is by Joe Corny, and it's a painting of Scotty, Sulu, and Chekhov. Um, they're all in different poses, um, and the backdrop is a red giant-type planet with the Enterprise flying above it. And then the incentive cover, or limited edition sketch cover, is just the second cover, but this time uh, black and white without all of the beautiful paintings. Alright, so the story starts off right in the middle of the filming of your favorite sitcom and mine, Welcome to the family. So this looks like a situation-type comedy with a, uh, a daughter and her parents. A lot of little jokey jokes waiting for the laugh track to kick in. And uh, they're waiting for the son to uh, come into the scene. And they keep trying to stall. And uh, we find out that this young actor is actually making a run for it. So he leaves the set and he's running down the... Uh, Trilateral Broadcasting Company Lot, or TBC for short. So the TBC guards catch the young man, and they shoot him dead right in the back. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy just happen to be on a studio tour at this moment, and they see it all happen. 
They see the whole thing. They are appalled that a man was killed just for trying to run out on his contract. Later, the crew of the Enterprise is being blamed for various studio problems, and we learn that the planet is actually governed by television stations. Um, the crew is imprisoned, and they're cut off from communicating with the ship. Shortly, Spock is able to nerve-pinch their guard, and they dress up in the guard's clothes, and they make their escape, only to find out that this whole escape is being televised in some sort of reality TV show. And as they think they're making their escape out of the building, they find out that they're on the set of a Dr. Phil-like show hosted by Dr. Marv. The network executives offer Kirk a way out of his sticky position. If he agrees to create a new show to beat out the rival's upcoming series called Eden 9, not to be confused with the real-life show Deep Space Nine, even though they have the exact same premise, Kirk agrees to create a one-time special, and he signs the contract. Kirk is having auditions with the whole crew of the Enterprise. They're going to have all kinds of parts for the show. There's going to be a music segment, dancing, magicians, and even a fun science experiment with that lovable Mr. Spock. When the executives see the budget for this variety show, they balk at the idea. Kirk talks them into doing something a little different. How about a hidden camera reality show aboard the Enterprise? And that way they can just go about their five-year mission and these people on the planet can watch the excitement ensue. The executives agree, and they load the Enterprise up with a whole bunch of hidden cameras. But they make these cameras complete with little bombs. So weeks go by, and the viewers at home are getting bored out of their minds because nothing is happening. Scotty spends this time finally disabling all the little bombs, and Kirk contacts the executives one last time and says, They quit. Later, on the planet, the broadcast executive gets a script for a new series by an author named Scott Tipton called Starfleet Academy. The end. <laughs> Good stuff, right? It was done for humor. It was done for humor. But it, it, the whole thing makes no sense. <laughs> yeah, so, so that where they say... Um, uh, somehow, I mean, these people appear to have the technology of the 1960s. I mean, they're using revolvers for Cripe Pete. They don't even have automatic pistols. Right. Yet, they are supposedly warp capable. And supposedly the satellites they have in orbit that look like, you know, like, like 20th century satellites is, has the ability to overload all the enterprise systems. So they supposedly are a real threat to them. Like, well, they're only a real threat to their communications array, so that's why Kirk was not able to talk to them. Uh, I think they were basically threatening Kirk that they would disable the ship or whatever with their ability to overload all of the Enterprise's systems. Mm. All right. Yeah, I guess I guess you could take it that way. I took it that they were just going to keep Kirk and them and, and prevent the Enterprise from contacting them or beaming them back up, but... Yeah, I guess so. I mean, well, I guess that whatever. Would prevent... Yeah. I mean, the main Re point. Yeah, go ahead. 
I mean, the main point is it just this was this was meant to be one of the more lighthearted episodes. So right. they really didn't worry about uh, it actually making any sense. Right. But the one thing I did like about it is the whole concept that their their whole government is based on entertainment. Yeah. And, you know, if you squint your eyes hard enough, you could see that that's, you know, we we as a, as earthlings in the <laughs> 20th century or 21st century, we could potentially get into that situation because, you know, I, I don't. I don't think I'm ignorant as far as what's going on in the world or in the government and things like that, but I will admit that I probably spend more time looking up <laughs> what's going to happen on the next Star Trek TV series or movie or the Star Wars or DC Comics or whatever than I do spend reading what's going on in the, the, the real in world. In the real world, yeah. And, and, and being, that's... In, being involved in the real world. I mean, you are involved with the real world, of course. You've right. got a family, uh, you've got friends, you've got, you know. But, uh, to, I mean, I agree. I, I completely agree. Uh, I mean, especially the whole idea of reality TV. I right. mean, you know, with traditionally scripted shows, basically, we as TV and movie viewers spend an inordinate amount of our lives watching other people live their lives whether it's scripted or whether it's reality TV, which quite frankly in many cases is scripted also. Right. Any way you look at it, uh, you know, we should be spending a little more time living our lives, I think. Although I, I, I spend an awful lot of time, my time reading comic books. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, that's what I'm saying. I, I, yeah. I'm like, I, I, I liked this story because I'm like, that, that, could be yes if yeah. if uh, if you know. Then you think of the movie like Idiocracy and stuff like that. Oh where, my god! Oh my god! <laughs> where you're like, what, what is going to happen when when the people really do stop caring about the rest of the world and they really just focus on their shows or, every yeah, night or whatever? Just stop thinking, right? And yeah. you know, this show, this this story was kind of set in that world where the the citizens of this planet only cared about what came on TV, right? And these two networks kind of ruled it all, right? Yep. Yep. Whoever has the whoever has the people's backing is is the ruler of the world. I don't know. It, it was an interesting concept. They didn't spend a lot of time going into how that would actually work, but uh, but I, I kind of liked it. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. At least it had some decent commentary right. that that kind of like hit me a little bit. Um, but. But as far uh, as the artwork and stuff, I really like that it looked like it could have been an episode of the show where they're trying to make futuristic, the 60s futuristic, you know, with, you know, everybody looks kind of like they did in the 60s. But, you know, every once in a while you'll see a car shaped with different kinds of wheels or something like that where it's like, oh, this is the future. <laughs> it still looks like the 60s. Yeah, a lot of things do. But good point about the uh, hovering car. At least I think it was a hovering car. I couldn't tell if it was a hover, if it was actually hovering or just on some sort of sled thing. But I yeah. guess it is hovering. It it, it kind of seemed like it was hovering. Although it seems to have wheel wells, right? But I but no wheels, at least that I can see. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of weird. It's a weird, wacky thing. Yeah, it definitely has '60s era suits because they're all. I mean, everybody has. 
60s, 70s era uh, American clothing. Right. Ah, so and then the variety show concept was funny. I thought. Oh well, it was it was kind of funny seeing what what the crew could do that would be entertaining. Uh, Spock's little thing, where he's going to play a song by rubbing his finger uh, along the top of a a, a set of uh, glasses with different amounts of water in them and stuff. It's like, okay, so obviously that's humor. You meant to be funny there. Because right. I can't see Spock ever doing that. It's like Mr. Wizard's World or, or uh, I don't know, Bill Nye, the science guy. Exactly. You know, that kind of stuff. Right, right. But but with Spock. Exactly. <laughs> that would be the driest show ever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like the jailbreak where they try to do the old, oh, Kirk is sick thing. And, uh, and of course, the... <laughs> The guard isn't going to fall for it. He says, hey, I watch TV. I'm not going to fall. That's the oldest trick in the book. And then it turns out, you know, Spock gives him the Vulcan neck pinch. And then McCoy says, that's the oldest trick in the book, which I thought was great. <laughs> yeah, and I liked how they how they got him to get closer to – they couldn't get him closer to the cell by pretending to be sick. But when when the guy's like, eh, oh, the autograph. Uh, my, kid, my kids really like the spaceman thing. Can right. you give me an autograph? Right, I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, because again, the the whole concept of celebrity and stuff were so ingrained in them that uh, right, he was exposing himself just to get an autograph right. from a famous person on the news. Yep, yep. It, 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 there were some some bits of humor in here that was okay, but me, um, I like yeah, the this... artwork. It's quite well, different than the last one. It is. And they got different artists doing a lot of these. So this is the Sharp Brothers. So I guess they were splitting up duties, I guess. Between um, uh, ink and colors and everything? I don't know. Well, colors, uh, Leonard O'Grady did the colors. Oh, that's but I'm, right. That's I'm just right. saying the Sharp Brothers did the uh, art. I assume they really are brothers. Yeah. I, I, never, I never heard I of them before I'm, myself. I mean, I think I've seen them in, in credits before. But, right. Uh, I don't know. I kind of like the style, though. Yeah, it's not bad. Although, it, it's interesting how loose-fitting the, the tunics are. Yeah, they're a little big. Yeah. So it always seemed like, especially in the first first uh, season, maybe the second season, like the velour shirts were kind of shrinking a little bit too much. They just seemed a little too small on Kirk and stuff, and, and, and to some degree Spock and company. But these are very... Very loose-fitting uh, tunics. Right. After season three, when they realize that uh, they're getting a little tight, they uh. compensate by getting bigger <laughs> shirts. Exactly. So they started using polyester instead of uh, – polyester knit instead of the uh, velour. Anyway, it looks very comfy. <laughs> yep. Kind of uh, cover that's up all, that's all Shatner's I spare tire. Okay. Do you have anything else? I got nothing else on that one. Okay. Okay. So the last one is issue number five, or last one for today is issue number five. November 2007 is the published date. Again, uh, David Tishman wrote this one. Uh, the art is by Steve Connolly this time. Uh, Leonard O'Grady did the colors. Uh, letterer is Robbie Robbins, and editor is Andrew Stephen Harris. We have uh, three covers. 
Uh, the first one by Steve Connolly. Um, this one, again, has uh, kind of a split uh, cover. So uh, one-third of it, it's split into thirds. One-third of it has the Enterprise flying along in space. Another third of it shows Spock. And then the uh, last part shows Kirk at the con. And I think it's uh, Scotty behind him. Uh, the next one, cover B, is another really nice uh, painting. Another great job by Joe Caroni, in my opinion. Uh, this one shows uh, Nurse Chapel and Dr. McCoy and uh, Spock and the Enterprise. Another nice, nice painting. Um, the Retailer Incentive cover presents the same cover as cover B, but this one's in black and white. So no, no uh, colors on this one. The Enterprise crew is carrying out an experiment to see if they can create quark-gluon plasma, which is theoretically the cosmic soup present at the birth of the universe. They are carrying out the experiment using what appears to be a space station very similar to the space station K-7 that was featured in the classic Taws episode, The Trouble with Tribbles. It is called the Gemini for a very good reason. The space station is actually a little bit more complicated than K-7, and it actually splits into two halves. Spock and at least two other crewmen are in one of the halves, while I assume other crewmen are in the other half. Once they have gone apart from each other a certain distance, each side shoots beams of accelerated atoms that both converge at a central point in the space between the two halves. The experiment ends up being too successful and creates a black cloud of quark-gluon plasma with enough energy to become, you guessed it, a singularity, a.k.a. a black hole. The half of the Gemini that Spock and at least two more crewmen are in gets sucked into the black cloud of gluons. Kirk and crew try to get Spock back and pretty much forget about the other two guys. The cloud begins to grow exponentially and traps the Enterprise. Meanwhile on the station, Spock gets an opportunity to rip his tunic. Kirk normally does it. This is Spock's turn. He is feverishly working under a control panel to do something clever, no doubt. Sula reports that the gravitational field of the black hole just changed again. One of the halves of the Gemini fires on the nearby star, which causes a huge solar flare that approaches the cloud. Chekhov reports the gravitational pull stopped for a moment, just as the flare hit the cloud. Kirk recognizes that it was Spock who figured out a way to temporarily hit the black hole's incredibly strong gravitational pull. Actually, stop it. Kirk tells Scotty to be ready to punch the engines with all the power he can. He orders Sulu to fire phasers at full power at the same spot on the star that triggered the flare before. The plan works and the Enterprise is able to escape the black hole's pull. Unfortunately, the Gemini module in the black hole is blown to smithereens and Spock along with it. Or so they think. Spock has saved the ship and crew at the cost of his own life. Oddly enough, this is not the last time Spock does this. Kirk is grief-stricken at the loss of his friend. 
Chekhov comes to his captain and tells him Spock may not be dead. The same window of time where the black hole's gravitational field was disrupted and allowed the Enterprise to escape also would have allowed the Gemini's transporters to be functional. Chekhov says due to the effects of time dilation caused by the immense, immense gravitational forces of the black hole, Spock may not actually have arrived on the Enterprise yet, though he left the station approximately 20 minutes ago. They race to the transporter room. McCoy joins them just in time as the whirr of the transporter starts. Sure enough, it's Mr. Spock, and he's all alone. Apparently the other guys did not make it. McCoy jabs at Spock for having nothing in particular to say. Spock and Chekhov go off together to do the calculations required to extinguish the cloud before it becomes a hazard to navigation. The end. Man, that was a good one. <laughs> and it made complete sense. <laughs> That's sarcasm, because it made no sense. Yeah. Yeah, so how many people died? I mean, we lost the whole station except for Spock, right? Well, okay, so that's really confusing. So it's split into two pieces, right? And uh-huh. and the part that Spock was in, and at least two other guys that we saw in some of the, the previous views as they were preparing to do this experiment, that got sucked into the black cloud of uh, singularity. And then what happened to the other half? But gets sucked in and towards the end. And Did it? Blows it? Up. Well, okay, hold on. Okay, so that's what's confusing about this thing. It's showing a bunch of shots that are, like, so unrealistic it is laughable. So you see a far-off shot of a a nearby star, the cloud, um, half of the space station. At one point, you see the other half of the space station, and then you see the Enterprise. So... It's showing all of them in one frame, which, you know, doesn't really make a lot of sense. You're not that close to a star. You can't be that close to a star. You'd get sucked into the star's gravitational pull. Anyway, very unrealistic, and it's just very confusing. Right. Well, and that's in that shot where they think they killed Mr. Spock, uh, it, I mean, it shows that solar flare leaving the star and then going straight into the singularity and then destroying the other half of the sh- of the space station. Well, the other so they must yeah. be really close. Well, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how how close it's well, whatever. It it doesn't matter. It's right. Let's all agree that it's ridiculous. The whole thing is ridiculous. The whole concept is ridiculous. The idea that the enterprise could be that close to a black hole, a singularity, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Um, right, and then of course the black hole is that close to a sun. Forget about it; not going to happen. Um, anyway, uh, and even though it's sucked into the singularity, which I thought theoretically, if you're sucked into a black hole, and yet yeah, maybe you come out the other side, which is a bunch of hooey. Um, but the 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 gravitational forces, as you even come close to a black hole, would rip you down to your atoms. Right. Um, so how Spock was able to survive as long as he did in the space station that was sucked into the cloud, which is supposed to be a singularity, 
whatever. The whole thing is stupid. Right. But and then somehow Spock was able to get the other half of the space station to fire into the sun. What there you go. I agree with you. I agree with you because it was not in the cloud. It must have been the other half. But I, he's able to send a signal to the sh- to this other half of the station, but he couldn't contact the Enterprise and let them know what's going on. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I don't know. I was yeah. I was confused a lot in this one, and uh, and it wasn't interesting enough that I was like, I'm going to do a deep dive into it to really <laughs> get, to the, get to the true meaning of the book. Exactly. At least it had RX in it. Right. And I did kind of like seeing Chekhov doing something competent. Where a lot of times, yeah, he's just standing there, yeah, trying, trying to fire on the vessels and, and <laughs> more comic relief than anything else. Yeah, and I really, I didn't go into the details of it, but uh, yeah, Chekhov figures out a lot of stuff, and of course, the whole time dilation thing—it's like, oh my god, they're pulling the time dilation card. Ugh. Right. So yeah, so Spock was able to beam himself out of the singularity, but because. He was in the time dilation. It got to the Enterprise, you know, hours later, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how much time. I said 20 minutes, but I really yeah. have no idea. But, but again, it didn't make sense because he was able to communicate with the other half of the space station super fast because yeah, it, it was firing onto the SAR. Unless they're trying unless to say – Unless he was in there. Unless they're trying to say somehow it was Spock's space station thingy half that fired, but – how could you do that? It was clearly outside the cloud. Right. And uh, how was – or was he in the other half that wasn't in the cloud? And if so, why couldn't the Enterprise just swing around and pick him up? I, I, uh, I don't understand why they <laughs> wrote him off as – as uh, I don't know. The whole well, thing they wrote him off because the, they saw the space station blow up, but whatever. But if you're – The other tri- half. The, the, well, the half that Spock was in. Okay, so he was not inside the – he wasn't in the first half that got sucked in. He was in the I thought, half. Well, I thought that was the whole point. He got sucked into the... That's what I thought, too. But, but it's in two pieces. Well, okay, so it makes more sense that the other half got sucked into the wormhole. Right away. And that, and that, his, right, and that his half was still, like, outside of it. That makes sense. That makes more sense, anyway. Because um, that means he wouldn't have been necessarily, you know, ripped to shreds through gravita- gravitational forces, and right. that that they were all worried about him because he couldn't he couldn't break free of the um, of the cloud. Although the Enterprise was staying far enough away that they could, until right. the thing started to expand. All right. Well, maybe, I guess that maybe makes that sense. makes more that makes more sense. But still, they could have swung. I would think that they could swing around it and get him off of there if they needed to. And then why well, did he well, why did couldn't. he fire onto the star and not tell them what's going on? Because they all had to figure it out. Yeah. Oh, he's shooting at the star to at, you know create a solar flare, and we have to figure it out on our own. But uh, I mean, if he wasn't in the one that's in the singularity, why didn't he just tell them what's going on? Yeah, I don't know. And the whole idea of a solar flare being able to stop the gravitational pull of a black hole. Yeah, you overload it. Wow, that – oh, you give overload it. You it. give it too much energy oh, and my it God. dissipates. No, no. Science. No, <laughs> not science. Bull, sh- bull nuggies. Science. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. It makes no sense at all. Although I'll say this makes more sense than the uh, 
The never-ending... The never-ending supernova that destroys the the Romulan Empire? I agree. I agree. (laughs) Or the fact that the Enterprise was able to surf out of a a black black hole uh, at the end of the movie? After... Uh dumping its warp, warp nacelles. And you know, it's kind of the same thing. They dropped the warp nacelles into that black hole and then surfed it out kind of the same way the sun is putting out this black hole by giving it a... So this even makes more sense than that one. Wow. That is really disquieting to think about. <laughs> I feel a lot... I, I feel worse now. <laughs> Uh, Good well, point, we've, we've admitted that that movie took some liberties with science. Oh my gosh! You know, <laughs> we terrible. know that this is all fake, right? We know that there's no such thing yeah, as warp drives and stuff I like know, that. So basically, they can be as powerful as you want them to be. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but but yeah. <laughs> so there was a really great episode of um, Space Above and Beyond. Okay. Which was produced by the people that did X Files. And I thoroughly enjoyed the show. But they had an episode where the task force has to get around this black hole. And they know getting around it is going to be really difficult. And the bad guys are out there. And you got to fight the bad guys but not get too close to the, to the black hole or you'll get sucked in. And they, at the end of the episode, a major character, guest starring character... Um, ends up getting sucked into the black hole. And the way they depict it is so cool. I mean, it, it kind of sort of makes sense how they depict it. So it's like the front of the ship is just totally sheared away. And as it gets closer and closer, more bits are sheared off the front of it until the whole thing is just a, a stream of atoms going into the, um, into the abyss. And, uh, you know, obviously the person who's in the fighter ship, that was a fighter ship I was describing, by the way, absolutely totally ripped to shreds. There was no way this guy would pop out on the other side in some other galaxy. Sorry. So, all right, I liked it. Was the special guest star Anthony Perkins? Because that would nah. be nice. <laughs> No. Oh, my God, that was a horrible movie. It's the only reason I watched it. I remember as a kid watching... Black hole, yeah. not because of the little robot, which yeah. I, I remember actually being kind of cool, but because somehow I knew that that was Norman Bates, ah. even though I think I was still too young to have actually seen Psycho. Mm-hmm. But I remember like knowing that that was Norman Bates, and like, oh, Norman Bates was in a, a Star Star Wars type show. I'm going to watch it, uh-huh. and I remember watching it as a little kid because of that. And I don't, I don't remember why I knew who Norman Bates was, nor thought it was interesting enough to, to watch the movie just because of that. But uh but yeah. I need to watch that again. Was it good it was it bad? Oh it was bad. It, it wasn't good. I just remember the little robot like shooting everybody with, with his little pistolas. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah what he did he did he hover around? He might have Yeah he hovered. Yeah hovered he was around. just a little ball guy. Right. Um the way it was presented to me was right up my alley. And I saw it, and it was like, huh. they somehow managed to make a totally bland, boring film. Great. Yeah, so it came out in 79, right right at the, the height of Star Wars. Yeah. Yep. 
wouldn't say it's the height, but uh, well, it was after Star Wars, but before Empire Strikes Back. Right. Yeah, it was one of multiple pieces of entertainment that came out in response to the Star Wars juggernaut. Right. It was 77, right? That's when Star Wars came out? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, and that was a juggernaut. And uh, thank God Star Trek was one of them. Yeah, it was. Well, Star Trek, the motion picture came out in 79 too, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. So totally in reaction to Star Wars, Bravo, two years later, and many millions of dollars later because they, what, Paramount? Were they Paramount back then or were they something else? Right. No, I think they were Paramount. Okay. So they tried to build their own special effects shop and failed miserably and spent all kinds of money. And then it ended up getting industrial light magic to do it to do it anyway. So um, anyway, whatever history, which is which is kind of cool that the Star Wars people helped make some of the best uh, some of the best Star Trek special effects movies were actually done by the Star Wars people. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure John Dry Dryraska Dryraska. Anyway, the special effects uh, supervisor on Star Wars. He's the guy that did the special effects, I think, for the original Battlestar Galactica, too. Oh. Um, which, a lot lower budget, but they use a lot of the same sort of techniques on a TV budget. Didn't Battlestar Galactica get sued because they... A little too, too close? close to... A little too close to, to Star Wars? Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, uh, the fighters were close. No two ways about that. But it really was a different storyline. Right. Yeah. I wonder if it was just the color scheme that it was little, little uh, airplanes with red and white highlights. And well, color scheme wise, they do look a lot alike. They do, and the general shape of the Vipers versus the uh, X wings. X wings, yeah, they're quite similar. Although they're also, I mean, there's a lot of differences too. Sure, sure. Still, yeah, there's no wings. <laughs> Vipers don't have much in the wing department. Don't have much, but they got wings. Just the two stubby wings. Now, when I was a kid, I loved that Cylon ship, and I had I had the toy that shot out the little missiles that that in hindsight created a big uh, big deal in the toy business because I guess it killed kids. It killed uh, them. Yeah, because you would shoot they... these little missiles, and they and I guess if you shot it into your mouth, you uh, choked and died. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. But I remember as a kid, uh. I would I would fly it up straight to my face like like it does in the show, right, where mm -hmm. it does a flyby. Yeah. But in, in my you know in my because my camera is my eyes, I would fly it <laughs> over like my forehead and then shoot it off right when it was right by my head. So I could totally see uh, how kids could you know uh, end up swallowing one of these stupid things. But uh, oh. I mean, it's super sad that it ever happened. But oh yeah, but yeah. As far as like the the toy. Uh, franchises and stuff. I mean, that was a big deal, and and uh, you saw a lot fewer of the firing action and toys like that after after that. Right. So, like, uh, there was supposed to be a Boba Fett that had a jetpack that shot off, um, and they canceled it and re re due to the retaliation of, of of the Battlestar Galactica toys. Yeah. So you know, long story short, I, I think I I I escaped death as a kid. Wow. Because That's I great. had the dangerous toys. <laughs> I, I had multiple things that shot stuff like that. Yeah, and I we... don't remember ever having an issue with them. No. Because nobody shoots them in your mouths. <laughs> well, I know. It's, 
But I mean, but I get, I totally could see like a baby doing it or something. Oh, not, baby, no, like, yeah, baby. Yeah. But that wasn't. I'm sure it's. Did, did they did they actually market for ages back then? I think they did. I don't know. Oh, I don't whatever. know. I, was a kid. I didn't care. Yeah, I didn't care either. I just wanted my Star Wars toy. <laughs> and Battlestar Galactica was was was, was close, close enough. Close enough. Okay. Cool. <laughs> Anyways. We went on an incredible tangent. Yes. Maybe because the story wasn't that good. To talk no, about. we didn't really have a lot to say, a lot more to say about this story. But uh, artwork-wise, what do you think? Uh, much, uh, much more cartoony than the other two, I thought. Yeah. And definitely the, uh, the faraway shots, you know, from space, trying to show all the different pieces in relationship to each other, totally unrealistic. Right. Um, but, you know, whatever. It's... I mean, I know it's a comic book. It's not going to be realistic, but it's so unrealistic. <laughs> oh my god! But as far as the crew go, I thought uh, I thought the way they depicted Hohora with her with her hair kind of down and her forehead and stuff. I, I don't remember no that actually being a style from the show, but I thought it was really cute. Well, it's cute, but I don't think that looks like Nichelle Nichols. No. I mean, she's got an incredibly long neck, and the 2009 movie hadn't come out yet. So I'm not going to say that she looks like, uh, you know, uh, I forgot her name, Zoe. Zoe Saldana. There you go. I'm not going to say it looks like her, but uh, quite frankly, more like her than Michelle Nichols. Right. I can see that. Yeah. And then, uh, so you're probably looking, you maybe look at the same page I'm looking at. Sulu's got a tiny face. (laughs) It's like like from the nose area up to his eyebrows. It just seems really compressed. Right. Well, all of them are like that. There's a lot of shots where it shows Kirk, and he has this massive chin and massive forehead. Yeah. Because his face is so kind of tiny. In. Yeah. If you look at uh, page nine of the book. Um, yeah. And how nice! I don't, nice I don't the, know. How nice of them to actually mark each page. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. It 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 doesn't look that much like like Shatner. No. I mean, it looks enough that you know, but really, not that much. Right. Well, sometimes sometimes not even that much. You're just like, uh, <laughs> who is this? Who, who are they saying? Uh, they're calling him Captain. It must be Kirk. Who is this square-jawed Aryan god here? <laughs> Anyways, um, but the Enterprise looks nice in, in every shot yeah. that I've seen. I, I think they did a good job there. Yeah. And that's about it for this this issue. I think so. Okay, so is there six of these? There's six of these. So there's one more, and then there's five of Star Trek Year 4, The Enterprise Experiment. Okay. All right, so next week, Ken, I think we'll finish off this miniseries with issue number six. Okay, good. And then do some classic-type reviews for the Star Trek Gold Key. Ah, back into Gold Key. It's been a while. It's been a while. Um, we're not going to do the big the big production. We'll just do... Not doing uh, Gold Key Theater. No, no. Just some, some plain standard, old... Standard reviews. Talking about the stuff. Yeah. Okay, sounds good. All right, so that'll be 21 and 22 of the Gold Key. Okay, sounds good. Till then, Ken, we got some Discovery and Orville to catch up on. And Oh, yeah. Okay. And by the way, I just have to say, even though temporarily, by the time you hear this out there in, in podcast land, it's going to be months, months and months 
after Discovery had done its third episode. But I got to say, third episode, pretty cool. I liked it. Yeah. It's very We actually different. got to see the Discovery, so that was nice. And you find out what the Discovery is. <laughs> I mean, like the ship and the, literally the Discovery, which has been kind of like a, a, um, you know, a mystery box that's been out there. Anyway, so very different from the, the prequel storyline that was the first two episodes, Fine Lovely, and now we're in the real show now. But it's going to be going forward, and I, right. I like the episode. Yep, it's good stuff. Yeah. Section 31. Section 31. Yeah, that'd be, uh, that'd be awesome if that's actually what it is. If the captain is not actually Section 31, he's got to be working with him. But that's, that's my thought. Okay. All right, Ken. Thanks for joining us, everybody, on The Review. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here